Alan Mangalano is one of the um, nicest jujitsu practitioners I've met in my life and has such a fascinating story, having gone through the training with Hickson and Elio and Harion and Henner and Huron. He's had such a deep <clears throat> entrenchment in jujitsu and tying that into being involved in law enforcement, it's going to be amazing to hear what he has to offer in regard to uh, his jiu-jitsu journey and what he's taken away um, that's led to his developing his perspective on jiu-jitsu. So sit down and enjoy. Dude, like, I think it was 2013, 2014, uh, you came out to Australia and did some law enforcement jiu-jitsu uh, seminars, but then you also came out to our school and did uh, a, just, just a regular jiu-jitsu seminar from there. And to this day, six years on, six, seven years on from that situation, you are the most requested person to have back for a seminar at our school. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's, that's amazing. I know, I know. I've never told you that, man. Like, I, I'm just holding that for this kind of conversation. <laughs> I love so, it. Like, legitimately, people were like, man, the, there was something about the way you connected with the people and the way you spoke to them um, that just made them be like, man, I really like that guy. And what he taught was cool. And I want him back. So thank you for that seven years ago coming onto the mat and doing a seminar. But like, hearing that, like, like what, are you, what are your thoughts on it? Man, I, that just, it really humbles me. I'll tell you that, you know, because I know you've had a lot of great instructors out there and yeah. a lot of great students out there as it is, you know. So for, for people to say that, it, it means a lot to me because that's my passion. My passion is to teach jujitsu. Mm. You know, to teach people jujitsu is exactly what I'm all about. Yeah. And um, so to hear that, you know, just really fuels me. And that's, that's um, you can't, it's priceless. You can't put it, you can't even put a dollar sign on that. That's just something that I can't even describe really. It just makes me feel great. Yeah. And Alan, how long have you been teaching for now? Uh, well, you know, I've been um, teaching. It's a great question because I started teaching Kempo Karate as far as became, yeah. becoming an instructor. I started teaching that when I was a kid. I was probably right around 17 when I started teaching yeah. karate uh, with my karate teacher. And, um, and then I got into jiu-jitsu, of course. I didn't get into jiu-jitsu until I was 26. Yeah. So I started that kind of late. But um, I started teaching that. Um, I didn't actually officially start teaching that until I got my blue belt. Yeah. Which was, um, which was actually in 96. Yeah. So I started training in 94, but I started, I got my blue belt in 96 and that, and I didn't want to teach anything jujitsu wise yeah. until I felt I was qualified to teach it. And, um, for me to be qualified, I had to hear something from, you know, the Gracie's of course. And, and Hickson told me, um, you know, once I got my belt, he wanted me to start teaching and he thought, he thought it'd be great to teach. So, yeah. um, I started teaching then. So it was 96 when I got my blue belt, when I first started teaching jujitsu. And, and when did you start law enforcement? Well, um, I, I had a lot of students that were police officers anyway, so I was teaching them as it was. And then, yeah. but that was before I was a police officer. So they would bring in certain situations to me. Hey, what do you do if a guy does this? What do you about this? And I'm like, these are situations I've never been in before. Yeah. And I never heard of before, you know? So yeah. I was like, wow, that's pretty interesting. Why would a guy do that? And, and then they explained it to me. I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. So I would, I would based on the principles that I already knew, yeah. I would try to come up with techniques and kind of go from the things that Hickson showed me, or I would go back and ask Hickson, you know, what do you do in this situation or that situation? And so it was kind of a gradual process. I didn't, it wasn't like one day I just started teaching law enforcement. I started teaching my uh, group class students that would have questions yeah. and then I would do private classes and they would specifically ask, Hey, what about these situations um, law enforcement wise? What, what, what we do here? 
I would show him that. If I didn't know, I'd go ask Hickson, we'd come back and show it. And then, and then just kind of took off from there. And then um, started training with Pedro Sauer. Yeah. And Pedro Sauer had a TAC program called Tactical Arrest and Control. Yeah. And he got my input. Then I, I eventually became a police officer. A lot of my yeah. students said, hey, you should become a cop. So I became a police officer. And then, of course, with my situations on the street, I found out the situations I was having to do, all the techniques I had to use out there. Yeah. Um, I, I, I met up with uh, Pedro Sauer as far as doing his TAC program. And we tweaked a few things here and there and started working with him and showing him the, the situations, the, the techniques yeah. that I needed to use. And then just kind of blossomed from there. And then, of course, um, training out at headquarters with, you know, Heaton and Henner. And then, um, you know, Heaton invited me to come out and do a GST one time. Yeah. He said, why don't you come out and be my guest, come on out to headquarters, do the GST. We'd love to have you out here. So I went out there. And um, by then, I already knew a lot of the program anyway, just from yeah. being with them. Mm. So he had me help teach it. And um, it was great. And I've just been hooked ever since. And that's, you know, talk about the double whammy is the uh, teaching jujitsu to law enforcement is just yeah. amazing, you know, and obviously we teach it for law enforcement now as opposed to just to law enforcement. And so it's, it's my dream right there. That's the best thing ever. I was saying when I came back from uh, GST2 in February, I was very, um, it was, I took away so much from the interactions that the law enforcement had uh, with each other. And what I said to is when I, uh, I had a few different experiences in LA training at like a, some competition schools, training at headquarters and training with the police. And I said, when I went to the competition school, nobody was sharing information because they were going to roll in a minute. So they didn't want you to get the technique right. So you can't use it on them. So they were like, right. if you don't have it too bad for you. You need to work it out for yourself. When I was at headquarters in group classes, it felt like home. Like everybody's helping each other out because everybody's like, if I ever needed this, I want it to work. Because they weren't thinking about rolling, they were thinking about self-defense. But when the police officers trained, it was this sentence. It was, when I need this on the street, then it has to be this dialed in. And so the level of camaraderie and help and appreciation for technique was so much greater than I saw in the group classes, which I already felt were like super supportive and wanting to get it dialed in and help everybody out. But the law enforcement officers, the camaraderie and the desire to get it right was so high. Um, and the level of respect for the technique, because it wasn't if I need it, it's when I need it. And that was something right. I never thought of. And that's very interesting because um, I just got done teaching, um, ironically today, I just got done teaching the recruits. Uh, today was the use of force day. So we have to go through the policy of use of force, when you could use different levels of force and what warrants different levels and, and all that. And I tell, I tell my recruits, I was like, listen, we have to qualify as police officers um, in two things. We have to, for sure, we have to qualify um, in CPR, okay? Yeah. And we have to qualify in firearms. And yeah. I don't know that either one, we'd do those twice a year, I mean, is what I'm trying to say. Not, just twi not two things, we have to do those, those things twice a year. Yeah. And um, we have to um, qualify in these. And I don't know that I'll ever have to use CPR on anyone. Yeah. And I don't know that I'll ever have to shoot anyone. Yeah. Hopefully not, right? That's, that's the plan when, you're, when you go through the police academy. But what I can promise every recruit is two things. Okay, you will get in a fight and you will get in a car wreck mm. at some point in your career. Now, I don't know how bad they'll be. It could be you're backing out of a parking spot and you bump a pole. Yeah. Or it could be a fatality. As far as a fight goes, it could be somebody just trying to get away from you that wants to escape the arrest. Yeah. Or it could be a fight for your life. This person wants to literally kill you mm. or anything in between. So I can promise those two things. Okay. You, you know, you're going to be in a car wreck and you're going to be in a fight at some point in your career. And um, what's interesting, like you were just saying about dealing with law enforcement is that we know 
that every fight we get into could be a life or death situation potentially. Mm. It could turn that way. People don't just wake up and think, hey, I'm gonna kill a police officer today. Some mm. do, but it's very rare, okay? Yeah. When law enforcement finds themselves in a life or death situation, it's usually because the opportunity presents itself and this person really wants to get away. They see the opportunity and they mm. make a last minute decision, a spontaneous decision to go to that level. Yeah. So at any point, potentially it could turn into, even a shoplifter could turn into a potentially a deadly situation if that yeah. person makes a choice. And um, so as law enforcement, when we train with GST, it's like we all understand that that potential is there, that we all, we're all on the same page. We may be in a fight for our life one day. Yeah. So we have, number one, we have that understanding. Two, when you're in a sport academy, sport-oriented academy, it's like, like you said, everyone is almost your competition. Even though you're your friend and all that kind of stuff. I mean, we're all yeah. buddies and we fist bump and all that. We're all hang out and, and hang out afterwards, whatever. But while we're on the mats, you're my enemy at this moment, yeah. figuratively speaking, and I've got to compete against you. It's, it's, it's take everything, give nothing. Yeah. And in law enforcement, we know the, en the enemy's outside. Mm. Whereas in, in the sport mindset, the enemy's right here on the mats. Yeah. And that's the biggest difference. And the thing that's great about, you know, Grace University there is the enemy does not exist in those walls. The enemy is out there somewhere. Yeah. And, um, potentially. And that's what, um, that's what we have to prepare ourselves for. So the mentality itself is different. Not just the techniques, you know, themselves, but the actual mentality, I think, is a little different as well. Yeah. It's, it's such an incredible thing, like, to, to have that philosophy that backs the techniques you know, that allows you to see why you'd implement them versus just like, this is a sweep. And then you try and force to pull it off from here. So no, this is why you're doing it in that situation. And that gives you right. such a different level of understanding of the techniques and why you're applying them. And then you don't have to use athleticism or attributes and so forth. Exactly when, right. Because you came through, you, you mentioned before, like you came through Hickson and you came through uh, Master Pedro and then you've come through with the, the Gracie Academy as well. In that, that early phase of learning through Hickson, um, like Hickson's seen as like one of the best competitors in the, in the Gracie family and, and an incredible roller. Was he delivering the philosophy at the same time or was it more about athleticism and uh, the techniques? Like how, what was his approach to teaching you in those early days? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, man, Hickson is so amazing. And, you know, not just in the sportive realm, of course, but he was just in street fights. I mean, he's, only, he's the only person that I know of that's alive on this planet that can claim to be undefeated. Yeah. Everybody else, if they try to say that, somebody's going to step up out of the woodwork and say, oh, wait a minute, I got yeah. you that one time, you know, whatever. Hickson's the only one that can claim that. So regardless of whether you think he's the best or not, anybody out there thinks he's the best or not or wants to argue that, yeah. he's still the only one that can claim he's undefeated. And, and because of that, you know, just that, that fact alone, you know, it made him um, so unique. And his philosophy back then, he was so deep with so many mm. things, you know, because he did teach the philosophy as far as, you know, conserving your energy, don't use too much energy, don't rush things. Yeah. But at the same time, he was also a never, never give anything and take everything type of mentality. Yeah. You know, so, you know, you don't let somebody pass your guard. You don't let somebody escape your mount. Yeah. If they do, you get back on there, try it again and see what you mess, see where you made the mistake as opposed yeah. to, well, if it happens, it's okay. Even to the point of even allowing it on purpose so you can explore a little bit more. Yeah. So they already did his, his, um, his method of exploration was a little different than ours because yeah. his method of exploration was actually in real fights, just like yeah. his dad. You know, they were more scientists 
exploring what, you know, how these things work, what makes them work, what makes them not work, where's their strengths and weaknesses. And they did that in real fights and real challenges. Yeah. Nowadays, we don't have to prove jujitsu anymore. Mm. Everybody knows the effectiveness of jujitsu. Yeah. So it's kind of taken the pressure off of us to have to prove it. So therefore, we can step back a little bit more and actually explore. I think that's what makes Hedren and Henner so unique in today's culture and in today's generation, because they still have the Gracie name to uphold and all that, of course, but not at the level that their, their, their dad, their uncles, and their grandfather had, where they had to prove the system outright from the beginning. You know, yeah. Hedren and Henner don't need to prove jujitsu. And um, so therefore you can, their, their teaching methodology now is a little different than Hickson's was because you, you, can, you can afford yourself to explore and let things happen that normally you wouldn't let happen in the old days. Yeah. That's incredible. I never thought about it like that, right? Like we, we had this idea of like the, the old school mat enforcer who like needs to show to the new people stepping on the mat that jujitsu works. And like we don't have that anymore. Like you, you, right. if, if you walk into a school and there's a mat enforcer, there's something wrong with the culture at that school. Exactly. Yeah. Usually yeah, don't, people don't last that long in that type of school. You know, you have a, a short life expectancy yeah. in, in that type of environment, you know? Yeah. It, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I saw uh, Keith Owens put up a post a couple of weeks ago about like uh, he had gone and talked to a few students that had quit jujitsu and what was the number one reason why they left early in the piece. Um, and the, the number one thing that kept coming up was uh, when they started to roll, they get pinned on the side mount and they'd feel like they lost control and they, they, they didn't want to have that feeling of a loss of control. Um, in that situation. And so just that was enough for them to feel overwhelmed, the anxiety and go, you know what, jujitsu is not for me. Um, and I feel like that's a situation where somebody's presenting a problem and not presenting the answer. And so you feel like this is a, uh, like it's almost like learned helplessness. Like I learned that I can't do anything, which was great if you're trying to in, be an enforcer. Like I want you to feel like you can't do anything so that one day you feel like you can do this to somebody else. But people don't want that. You know, people don't want to have that experience or very few people do like we did. Like we came up that way and we were happy to experience it because we've got that mentality. Right. But it's like the 1% mentality in martial arts. That's why 1% of the population do martial arts and 1% of that you know, percent do jujitsu. You know, it's like, it's just that there's only a few people that could come up that way. Now that we're exploring different ways, we're seeing a broader approach going on to people um, and, you know, like because of that problem answer uh, focus that kind of comes through. And so in seeing the people coming in through your academy, like what impact do you feel like you're having on those people with the philosophy that you're teaching? Oh, it's amazing because as Elio Gracie believed, Jiu-Jitsu is for everyone. Mm. But training the old school way when they were proving it, it wasn't for everyone. Not everyone <laughs> can hang with that. Like you said, it took that type A personality that we have to where you know, I'll take the beating. I'm going to keep showing up to class because eventually I'm just hard-headed enough to know I'm going to, I'm going to get it eventually. Maybe not yeah. today, but I'm, I'm going to be there. And the, the thing that I think is different now is that before, like you said, when people get caught under the side mount position, they're taught a false sense of failure. Yeah. It's like if somebody passes your guard, you messed up. Yeah. If you end up on the bottom of side mount, that's a mistake. That's a mm. failure. So it conditions the mind that, I just did something wrong as opposed to, and that's how it is in life. You know, no matter where you are, he don't even talks about this. No matter where you are, you want to be somewhere else. You're not happy where you are. Yeah. You have to constantly try to improve your position. No matter what job you have, you need to make more money. No matter yeah. what car you have, you want a nicer one. No matter, yeah. 
you know, whoever, whoever you're with, you want somebody better, whatever. And it, it, that's just kind of our, our natural instinct. And, and when that translates onto the mat, you have a lot of false sense of failures. You know, you think if somebody passes your guard that you messed up as opposed to, it's not that big of a deal. Mm. You can be on the bottom of side mountain, be comfortable there. Hickson used to teach me that. He said, because he, he asked me that, he said, what, what do you, what's, your, um, what's your weakest area right now? I said, bottom of side mount. And anybody who's a beginner in jujitsu, especially the old way of training, yeah. bottom of side mount was the worst for everybody. Yeah. Especially me because I was always the smallest guy. I, I had guys 70, 80 pounds heavier than me constantly. And my guys, I was always the smallest guy. There weren't, there weren't nobody, my, there was nobody my size at the time yeah. in my area of jujitsu, you know? So be on the bottom of side mount. He said, great. When he, you learn how to be comfortable in hell, then you won't, then problems don't exist. Mm. So he said, now get on your back. I'm going to get side mount on you. And we went <laughs> there, you know? So, so that was kind of his mentality is let's get used to the worst positions yeah. and deal with those. And then it'll be okay. And then you don't, it doesn't matter so much if somebody does get past your guard or if somebody gets side mount or mounted on you, whatever. But at the same time, you never want to let somebody get there. But if they do, you can deal with it. And now the students who come in, every position is beautiful. Yeah. Every position has something to learn from. There is no bad position. You know, and when you have that mentality and you, have, and you teach that to your students, then now the students welcome anything you bring in as opposed to having little areas that they fear. Yeah. No, and it opens them up for more exploration. So therefore, it trains their mind a little bit better to be, I think, a better student even. Yeah, I think that's a great point, right? Like is, is that the way that we teach didn't just make it more accessible to people because it's a, it's a more pleasant way to be introduced to it, but you're actually building better practitioners because you're changing the way that they think about jujitsu. It's not just, I want to be stuck in this situation, but I want to be stuck and that's okay. And there's going to be an answer along the way and I just have to be patient and the opportunity will be there. Um, and that kind of translates better to, to life in that situation. You having started jujitsu and then transferring into law enforcement, which, which I wasn't even aware of. Like I thought you were a police officer and jujitsu came kind of came in. You having gone through that experience and helping police officers and then transition in, did you see that you approach law enforcement different to people who came through the, uh, like the, like the law enforcement Academy, um, and then just went into the job. Do you feel like you have a different mentality to them or a different way of approaching problem situations? It's actually one of the things I was teaching my, my students today, the recruits today is you have to learn how to be patient. You know, like when you get stuck under side mount in jujitsu, let's say you get stuck under side mount and most people want to get out in the first 10 seconds. Mm. But if you really understand jujitsu, there's no rush to get out. Mm. I'm going to get out when the time is right. Yeah. In the meantime, I'll defend myself and whatnot. I'll get out when the window of opportunity presents itself. In the meantime, there's absolutely no rush. That's why Grandmaster Alio was able to fight the longest fight in human history, three hours and 40 minutes. It wasn't because he was rushing anything. Mm. It's because he knew how to be patient and when to be patient. So therefore, we translate that into police work to where if I say, hey, Mr. Singh, you're under arrest. Turn up, put your hands behind your back. And you say, no, I'm not going to jail. Most police officers take offense to that. You just defied my authority. Yeah. And they rush in and want to go hands on with this person. Now it's a combative mess. And yeah. now you're trying to force this person, his will versus hey, Robbie or Mr. Singh, you're under arrest, put trans behind your back. You go, I'm not going. It's like, well, no, you have to go. You're going to go to jail. It may not be right now, but yeah. I work a 12 hour shift. <laughs> so sometime between now and the end of my shift, you're going to be in jail. Yeah. You can either do it now or you can do it later, but it's going to happen. Yeah. The more, sooner you cooperate, the better it's going to be. And when you have that kind of mentality, you don't have to rush anything. There's no mm. rush. Make it happen. 
there's no urgency necessarily. There's going to be times where that happens, of course. But generally speaking, we're, you know, I'm a lot more patient because yeah. of my training. I love and, that idea of like, um, don't take personal offense to it. Like it's, they're not, no. it's, it's not your problem. It's like their problem. They don't want to be arrested. Like they realize they messed up. They realize there's a problem and you just got to wait it out. And we're, and we're going to, and, and we're make, let them make the decision. It's kind of like, you know, um, your kid trying, it's time to go right to your grandma's, to his grandma's house. He doesn't want to get in the car seat. Yeah. Well, do you force the kid in the car seat and have him kicking and screaming, like trying to put a cat in a bathtub Yeah. then have him screaming the whole way to grandma's house, but you imposed your will upon them. Or do you say, okay, you don't, I see you don't want to get in the car seat right now. Let me know when you're ready. How long do you think a kid usually waits? 20 yeah. seconds. Yeah. And they're okay. Now, do you want to get in the car seat? Do you want me to buckle you in or do you want to do it yourself? Yeah. So not getting in the car seat is not even really an option. Yeah. It's how do we want this to play out? Yeah. And when you can keep that kind of patience, now the trip to grandma's house is so much more pleasant. Yeah. You know, now, of course, not every, every person is going to go along with the plan so easily. Mm. And when you have to get physical, you have to get physical. Yeah. But um, I, have a, I have a kind of a neat story that um, I just shared with my, uh, my recruits today is I work off duty on the weekends. I work at a bar security. Yeah. And I do that for extra money. You do that for extra cash you get as a police officer here. Yeah. Like you can. And I had the bartender come up to me and he says, hey, we have this guy in here. He doesn't want to leave. And um, I was like, okay, show me, show me. He brings me to the guy. The guy's a pretty big, solid guy, right? Yeah. He's a real solid guy. I'm like, hey, come on, we need to, you, need, you need to go ahead and leave. He's like, why? I didn't do anything. Right away, he's already being defensive. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, well, you just have to leave. If the bartender says you have to leave, you have to leave the, leave the bar. Well, why? What did I do? I, I don't know what you did. You need to go outside. And he's like, he starts to argue with me. Yeah. So I was like, so I could either get physical with him right here in the middle of this bar, which may not be the smartest tactical decision. Or what I said to him was, hey, you know, what, what'd you say? And he goes, I said, I didn't do anything. Tell me why I have to leave. I go, I can't hear you. He says, I, I didn't do anything. I said, listen, the music's too loud in here. Let's go outside and talk. <laughs> yeah. So I you i want to hear your side of it but i can't hear you in here so we walk outside shut the door problem solved he's not going back in now i said now yeah. now tell me your side of this what's going on he tells me he's still being aggressive yeah because i don't want to leave i don't want i shouldn't have to leave i'm like i understand but they can refuse service to anybody and then he said he balls up his fist and turns sideways with me he says you don't want to wrestle me you'll lose yeah i'm from mongolia is what he tells me and he's a big solid guy yeah and i said man you're right it's 3.30 a.m. The bar closes at 4. I just want to go home, eat a bowl of cereal, and go to bed. I don't want to fight you right now. You're right. Yeah. You know? And he said, well, I'm going to fight you, and you're going to lose. So he just showed me his hand. He just told me he's going to fight me. So I asked the recruiter, I said, what do you think I did? They said, man, you, you took him down. You did this. You did that. And I'm like, no. I got on the radio and said, 1823, I need some backup. I have a guy who's standing here. He said he's going to fight me. Yeah. And I just wait. I yeah. kept my distance. I was totally ready at any time. Versus having to go in and go hands-on and, and get, taking it personally. Yeah. Okay. So then, then I'm waiting for my guys to show up. And he looks at me. He goes, you're going to need three more officers at least because I'm going to fight every one of you and you're going to lose. <laughs> yeah. That's a pretty good indicator that this guy doesn't want to go. Yeah. So what, I asked the recruits now. I was like, what, now what do you think I did? They go, oh, you took him down. You, you, you get to fight him now. And I'm like, I got on the radio. I said, radio, he's now saying that I'm going to need three more officers. He's going to fight us all and we're going to lose. Just like that. Yeah. I said, what do you think my guys were doing now? They were flying to get there. They couldn't wait. Yeah. Why not? Well, number one, they wanted to see the action. They wanted to see me get in a fight with somebody, right? Yeah. <laughs> they wanted to try to get it. They wanted to see what's going to happen with this. 
I have a guy flying in sideways. He comes flying in, car sideways, the whole deal. They jump out, there's seven cops there now. Yeah. And I looked at the guy, I never took my eyes off of him. I said, see, now look, not only is there three here, there's seven of us. Okay, so I need you to either turn around, put your hands behind your back, or it's going to get ugly really fast. It's your decision, though. We don't want to fight you. Yeah. He reluctantly turned around, put his hands behind his back. I put handcuffs on him, walked him over to the car. I said, get in the car. He goes, I'm not getting in the car. I was like, now what do you think I did? Oh, knee him in the leg, whatever, whatever. I was like, no. I was like, I was like you need to get in the car. He goes, I'm not listening to you. So I looked over at my partner. I said, hey, tell him to get in the car. He says, will you please get in the car? And he goes, I'll listen to him. <laughs> so there you go. Number one, rule number one, avoid the fight at all costs, right? We don't always have to fight, but there's many times where you can very easily let it happen and just jump right into it. So to answer the question you had earlier is, you know, what makes it different for me a lot of times is because of that type of mentality where I don't have to fight everybody. I fight every day on the mats, you know, yeah. I train up every day. So there's plenty of time for that kind of stuff. Um, but we don't want to fight on the street. Police officers, we don't want to fight. And if I can avoid the fight, I will. If I have to, I'm ready to go. Dude. But if we can avoid it, we want to avoid it. That's an amazing story. Then the whole time, man, like I'm like I'm like goosebumps, like hair standing up. I think I'm like he's gonna go now. He's gonna right. go on this right. one. It's coming up. And then you're like, no. And then every time you like, I talked out of it. Like I was like, oh man, that's so much more satisfying to hear that it went it, down that way. You know, that's kind of what's neat about it is, um, you know, the the more trained you are, it's it's almost a game. Let me see if I can talk this violent guy out of wanting to fight. Yeah. I find more satisfaction than that than putting him on lock or some kind of chokehold or something like that, you know? Let me see if I can outsmart this guy. Let me see if I can just get him to calm down. Now, sometimes you can't. I mean, there's been three times in my life that I was in a fight for my life. Yeah. Like, literally, if I didn't have training, I would be, I'd be dead right now to this day. Three, yeah. three times in my life, I, I, I was in a fight for my life. So those things happen, and there's nothing you can say to those people yeah. in the, in, when those situations happen. And... um so, but if you can, if I can talk them out of it, I try to talk them out of it. But at the same time, I, I, I fully believe, Robbie, there was one point I remember thinking, I was like, oh, we're, we're getting ready to fight for sure. Like, yeah. there's no way out of this. There was a point where I thought there was, there's nothing I can say to this guy. He, we're going to, it's inevitable. We're going to fight here. Yeah. Fortunately, it didn't work that way. But we've had several situations where that's what did happen. You know, it did go down that way. Yeah. So, you know, but, but a lot of the training, it's just the training. You have, yeah. Being able to stay calm under pressure, comfort and chaos, you know, the yeah. whole thing. You know, that's, that's, that's really what it's about, you know? And then like, people think that they're just catchphrases, right? Like we just say them because they sound cool. But the, the reality is like, it's a, it's a tagline that allows you to follow this whole concept all the way back. And I think like, it, that's the cool thing about the philosophy that we have is that there are these little phrases that have so much power behind them that can completely change you as a person if you understand the deeper meaning of each of those phrases. It just improves your whole life. That's why when they say jiu-jitsu is a lifestyle, it sounds so cliche, mm. but it's so true. Yeah. You know, jiu-jitsu is in every single part of my life. Yeah. You know, and um, some easier to apply than others, but it's still in every part of my life, you know? Yeah. And, um, and that, that's, just, that's just so amazing. That's what keeps me so enthralled in the whole system and in the, in the on Gracie Jiu-Jitsu itself is just because I see how many ways, like, it's, not, it's not just something I do a couple times a week on the mats. And then when I get off yeah. the mats, I turn it off. You know, there's not a jiu-jitsu switch that's on and off. You yeah. know, jiu-jitsu is just part of your DNA. It's part of me. There is no, there is no on and off jiu-jitsu switch. Hiron you know? like said this uh, sentence this week where it was like, I'm not worried about what's going on right now because I am jiu-jitsu. And like, 100%. He's the jiu-jitsu prophet. Hiron Gracie, by the way, is the jiu-jitsu prophet. Just so you know that. I, I say that him. all the time. I say like, 
um, Master Pedro is the technician and Henna is the poet, but Huron is the philosopher of the family. And, you know, it's like, they're my influences on me. Like Master Pedro dials me in like technique, like how to connect with people, how to be a good leader, like how to kind of like uh, go through and do this like beautiful technique. And then, Hannah's a poet. He like energizes me. He like comes in and he's like speaking the word of jujitsu and he's like getting you all motivated to want to be in it and the passion he has for it. Yeah, he's got all the rhymes and all the sayings. You know? Yeah, and then and then Huron is the philosopher. He just kind of sits in the background and every now and then throws out a little sentence. And I'm like, what did you say? And I'll be stuck on that for like six months, just like thinking through like, what are all the different ways that he meant that kind of thing? And then I'll come back to him and I'll say to him, like, man, you said this thing. And he's like, I don't know, just felt like saying it at the time. Right? He, he, he didn't have the coolest saying at the last ICP that stuck with me. It'll stick with me forever now. He said, I would show you this move right now. He's kind of talking to the whole group. I'd show you this move right now, but it's too much sand for your little truck. <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> fantastic. It was fantastic. I was like, that's so true. Yeah. You know, and, I'd, I'd show you this right now, but it's too much sand for your little truck. And oh, I'm man. like, that's great. That's great. So yeah, he's, he's got, he's got all the, all, his philosophy is amazing, but yeah. that you know, his philosophy and, and Henner's philosophy, just his whole family, you know, they're all so different personality wise, mm. but um, they're all cut from the same cloth, obviously. And it has such a big influence on my whole outlook on martial arts, my whole outlook on life. I mean, it, it's definitely changed. They've changed me, you know, for the yeah. better. 100% and I get better every day because of those guys. It's, it's, you know, I'm so thankful for the Gracie family. When you think of that, like you've, you've had contact with uh, Hickson and Master Pedro and Horion and Henna and Huron and, you know, like this, this whole kind of like smorgasbord of like jujitsu royalty. Like, Grandmaster Elio. Yeah, Grandmaster Elio. Like you had the opportunity to go and train with him as well and have impact from him. Yeah, like which not many people have had that experience thinking on that, reflecting on that, like just what does that mean to you as a practitioner in the art to like have that influence on, on you and your teaching and your, your technique? Well, it's um, man, to put it to you simply, it's, it's been amazing. And I, I can't think of another word that really describes it for the fact that it, I learned from the source yeah. You know, and not that there's not, there's other great teachers out there. Don't get me wrong. There's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of great teachers and there's people that have come down through the lineage and even learned off their cousins and stuff. And, yeah. and what that are great jujitsu teachers. So it's not to lessen any of that by any means. There's great other martial arts instructors, just other styles of martial arts. Yeah. But to learn Gracie jujitsu from the founder mm-hmm. and from you know, his sons, the ones that perpetuated it throughout the world. It, it's it's a humbling experience because one day you know we're going to be telling our kids and our grandkids that we knew who they were yeah they're not going to be here anymore you know and to learn from them because their mindset was the one that blazed the trail yeah. you know so to be right behind the explorer as they're cutting the trail mm. it's pretty neat yeah you know it's pretty neat because the path wasn't as easy as it is now yeah uh, for a lot of people, you know, it wasn't as easy for me as it is for a lot of people now. And I'm not even, we kind of talk, it's funny because we talk like old school back in the day when I was training, when, when I started training, they used to talk about old school and then yeah. those guys were talking about old school. So, I mean, how, how far back is old school? I, you know, I don't know, but yeah. um, it, it, it's just, it's just such an honor to be able to say I actually trained with the family itself, the guys who actually founded this system. When yeah. I was a kid, I was always obsessed with trying to find the best instructors and in whatever I was learning. Like, I want to learn from Bruce Lee so bad. If I could have found a way to find Bruce Lee, 
I would have been with Bruce Lee as a private student. I didn't care how much it cost. I needed to learn from him personally. That's, that's all I wanted. Yeah. And then, and then I wanted to find the ninjas. I have to go train with the ninjas. Yeah. You know, I was going to go out, go out to Japan and, and find some secret ninja camp and, and have the master teach me out there. And then when I heard about the Gracies, started studying on them. I was like, man, I've got to, these are the guys I need to learn with for real. Yeah. So I just did that. And that's what I, I went out there and, and made it happen. You know, I was yeah. just driven to, to be able to train with the, the best in the world. And, um, you know, to be able to train with them and to be the representative. I was yeah. the first guy, was the first guy in my city in do and to, to train with them and be the representative, be asked by Hickson to be his representative here was, I, I, don't, I can't even put that into words, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, it's just fantastic, you know, to be, to be considered part of the Gracie family by Henry and Hedron themselves, you know, they, t- they flat out told me, you know, you're like, you're part of our family. It's just, I, I don't even know what to say. It makes you almost tear up just because I have so much, so much gratitude to them and, and, and what their family means to me. You know? Yeah. We had, um, because my kids, my family, my students, yeah. you know, that, teaching me i want to give it as pure as possible as i can to my students and my family yeah we had rylan lazar out from um hawaii he was over for one of the ufc's in auckland and he kind of popped over to to melbourne and taught at our school and he finished the seminar and as everybody's about to leave he's like hold on hold on hold on, guys come back in for a second he's like i just want you guys to to know something he's like i started jujitsu you know 20 something years ago um and as a white belt i just started doing this for fun and he's like, and 20 years later, I was just cornering a fight in the UFC. And now I'm in Melbourne teaching, you know, 80 people jujitsu. And, you know, I was you know, six weeks ago at a, um, an international headquarters meeting for all the Pedro Sauer teachers. And I've got, you know, uh, Jeff Curran, who I like looked up to and Master Pedro. And I'm on the same panel as them. And I'm in this situation where I'm like, oh, man. Like I've been accepted into this situation. And he's like, when you start jujitsu, you don't think of what potential impact it could have on your life. And then you're in these situations where like for yourself, like you're, you're representing Hickson and you're representing Henry and Heron and you've got them like, like treating you like one of the family members in that situation and checking on how your kids are going and asking how your wife is. And you know, like there's this way that you grew within it that was never something you aimed to do but that that right. impact is so strong on you. Like you're saying, like gratefulness, they bring tear to your eye. Like it is very fortunate the kind of situation we found ourselves in. It, no, it's amazing because you know, just just like you're saying, you know, when I, when I first started training, I was flying out to California to train with Hickson. I'd close out my savings account, save everything I could to fly out there. I'd spend a week. I'd do a group class in the morning, private class in the afternoon at his house, then a group class that night, and then I would come back with no money. Yeah, and some of my Kempo students did that for years. And when, it, when he told me to come out and test for my blue belt, I took his very first blue belt test. Yeah. Like before, when he first started doing testing. Because back then, you got a belt handed directly from him in class. There was no yeah. testing. Just, you're one of his students. Well, since it started kind of spreading throughout the U.S., they didn't have the, you know, obviously I'm not training there on a regular basis. So he wanted to put me through a test to make sure that I knew certain criteria, which I had no idea was even on the test, by the way, until I took it. There was no, yeah. I had no idea it was going to be on the test. Anyway, once I got, you know, I didn't even think I'd ever even be able to get a blue belt. Yeah. I, never, I didn't even think that was a possibility, being living all the way in Kentucky. There, the Gracie Academy is all the way out in Los Angeles. How am I ever going to get a rank on, in Gracie Jiu-Jitsu? I just wanted to learn whatever I could. Yeah. Well, now here I was getting a blue belt. Getting a black belt wasn't even fathomable to me. I was like, There's no yeah. way it would even be possible. And then, like you said, now here I am traveling the world, teaching seminars, 
you know, all over the place, traveling um, with Henner and Evandro and them teaching GST yeah. all over the place. And I mean, it, it's just, it's amazing what it has, you know, it's an investment. My, my Kempo instructor told me when I was a kid, martial arts is an investment. Yeah. You'll get out of it whatever you put into it. It can be a hobby, just something you do once or twice a week, or you can go all the way to owning a school one day. It depends on how yeah. much you want to put in, how much effort you want to put into it. And that will in turn return so much more to you. Yeah. And you know, I've dedicated my whole life. My whole being is in the martial arts and teaching other people to, to have better lives because of, because of martial arts. And, um, it is. It's amazing. It's amazing that I'm even in this position. I'm very humbled by it, you know? And it's so cool, right? Because there's people who could be find themselves in that same situation and not be as humble or as grateful about it, but they'll never have as many opportunities as come up for yourself in those situations because they lack that. And so people see it, like it, it comes off as disingenuine interest in what you're doing because you can see that there's a, another desire that somebody wants from that interaction so when you just want to share and you just want knowledge and you're passionate about it it is it's not luck anymore it's like it's passion paying off in that situation Mm. right so that's exactly that's kind of one of of my students told me laugh when i got my black belt i trained for like 13 years you know before i got my black belt and um he says man look at that you trained for 13 years you're an overnight success It's, you know, it's kind of funny how that works. Like exactly right. You, know, you put all this time in and things happen, you know, all of a sudden it's, it's kind of weird how all these opportunities happen, you know? Yeah. Um, but you know, it's not weird because you just, it's all the connections you make. It's all the effort, the passion. Like you said, the students in Australia, just, they just saw my pure passion from it. I was just so excited to teach. Yeah. I can't help but show that, you know, I get excited every single day I'm on the mat, you know, yeah. every day I can step in front of some people and be able to show them something they didn't know or make their jujitsu better or something. If I can do that, my, my life's worthwhile. That's what it's all about. You like know? you hear uh, the Joe Rogan podcast. He's always like, I don't know how people can just sit in an office all day doing something they hate when there's something you could be out to going and getting you motivated. And like people always ask me like, how can you teach morning classes, evening classes, privates during the day? Blah. And I'm like, yeah, it's, it's passion. And people go, it's, um, they say it's, it's overwhelming how much you do. And I go, it doesn't feel overwhelming for me. Because I enjoy it. Guys, I'm, I'm telling you, Robbie, it's, it's so funny you bring that up because people ask me all the time, look, I, I, run, a, I run an academy and our, our academy is a part-time academy, but it's probably bigger than most full-time schools around here. Yeah. So that's a full-time job in itself. I'm a, I'm a full-time police officer teaching in the police academy. I have a family to raise. And people say, man, how do you do this? You know, when do you sleep? And I say, man, I sleep at red lights. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, but I'm, I'm fueled by the passion. It's not like, oh man, I got to put another 16-hour day in or... Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's like 16 hours goes by like that. Like it's nothing. Yeah. You know, I wake up early in the morning, I go to work, get up, I finish that. And I go and I go train, teach and train at night, come home, eat, wake up, go to, go to work the next day. I'll do it all over again. And, yeah. and when you do something you love, you never work a day in your life. Yeah. You know, that's really what it's about. And um, man, I don't feel like I work at all. I can't believe I can get paid for what I do. It's, it's almost, it's almost ridiculous just because I love what I do so much yeah. that I never, I'm working, you know? It was really interesting. Like I was uh, uh, speaking with another person who, who's uh, at another school and they were talking about how they, they work part of the teaching team and they'll get like emails uh, from the, the head instructor talking about like the revenue. Like we hit this revenue this much. It's this much of an increase. You guys are doing really good. And his measure of success is how the finances of the school kind yeah. of work. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and it's like, I, I don't think I've, I've ever kind of even thought about that 
as being like a measure. It's like, do I walk out of the school feeling like I taught a good class? And if the class isn't, you know, to the standard I thought, like I'll perseverate that. My wife can tell if I come home from class and I'm kind of like in my own head, she's like, what didn't you like about what you did? Was it a phrase you said? Was it a single word that you didn't feel went well? Did you do the grip wrong and not in the right order two times in a row? She can tell like it's something so nitpicky that I'm going over. Whereas other people are worried about like the finances or like, you know, how it's going to go through. And we don't have to worry about that because we're worried about them. And that will take care of itself on the other side. If you, I, I feel if you try to put, if you try to measure your success on something tangible, like just how many students you have or how much money's in the bank or yeah. anything like that, you know, it's, it's very misleading because like I said, we can always have more, yeah. you know, it's the things like, how did these people feel? What was the energy of tonight's yeah. class? You know, I'd rather have a class of 10 people and have amazing energy. When you leave, you feel like, man, that was just amazing. That was so good. I'd rather have that than to have 50 students in there and leave thinking, man, something just didn't click. Yeah. Because the whole culture, the whole vibe is really what counts, you know? And um, man, you, just can't, you, can't put a, you can't put a quantifiable um, thing on it. It can't be something tangible, you know, really. Yeah. I think for, to measure success on that, you know, I, I really do because people, you know how it is, the saying is, you know, people may not remember what you do, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. Yeah. You know, so there's not one thing you can do to make people really remember you as much as how did you make them feel? And they'll remember that forever. So the thing is, in our academy, that's the whole thing. It's how people feel when they leave class, how people feel when they come in and how people feel when they leave, you know, how they feel everything in between. That's what it's all about. You know, do you feel like you're getting better? Do you feel like you're learning something? Do you love the energy? Are you happy to be here? Are you excited to be here? Yeah. You know, do you, how many friends do you feel like you have here? Yeah. You know, that type of stuff. Do you feel like you're part of the family? Mm. Do you realize that I would do anything for you? You know, that type of thing. Um, and that, that's the stuff that makes me feel like, yeah, we're successful because that's the culture we have. That's the type of people we have in there. We're the best people in the world as far as I'm concerned in our academy, you know, and that's what makes me feel like it's successful. Yeah, it's really interesting because with everything going on now and like the school having to be closed and so forth, people are like, how concerned are you? And I'm like, there's a level of concern that the school might not return if like it goes on for so long and finances can't support and so forth. But we're going to reopen one day. And when people do, people will come back because of how we made them feel. 100%. People ask me, I'm not worried at all. Mm. I'm not worried one bit about this. This is, this is the new normal, right? This is where, this is where we are right now. Yeah. So, you know, if it does happen where our school shuts down over a period of time, I don't think it will. I don't see that happening. But yeah. if it did, I'll just reopen and start again and we'll come right back again. So there's no, it's a pause. In fact, I haven't even said we canceled classes. We've paused classes. Yeah. Our classes are on a pause. They haven't stopped. Yeah. We're just in a little pause right now. We're going to resume. I don't know when, but we're going to resume again. 100%. Yeah. I was told everybody, first year, the first academy anywhere around here, we'll be the last academy standing. Yeah. That's just, that's just the way it is. Even if we had to shut down, we'll reopen again and we'll still be the last one. So I'm not, I'm not worried about it one bit. I'm going to be there for our students the day that I can be there. Yeah. And my students can come back because of the way they felt and what they learned. And that's, I, that's not an issue at all for me. Yeah. Not a, I don't care if we're shut down for five years. Five years from now, we're going to reopen and start all over. That's what it takes. Yeah. So I'm not worried about that one bit. Hi. Hey, there's Kai. <laughs> How <are> you, buddy? <laughs> um, it's uh, it's so cool, right? Like, like you you've got like your your family and like you got your know, Kai now, and it's um, I, I saw the photos on Facebook the other day of you guys training, and you know, like you got the family unit going on from there, and 
and like what is that experience for you like as a parent going and getting to share with like your your youngest kid um coming you know with all the knowledge that you have man it's 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 just amazing again it's it's another it's another form of quote payment that i can't yeah. even describe because if you were to if you were to offer me a, a, an x amount of dollars but I couldn't teach my kids or couldn't teach my family. I would never take it. There's not the amount of money you could ever do it. I mean, the fact that I can teach my, my child is priceless. The fact that I can teach my wife is priceless. Yeah. Touch the computer though. That's Mr. Robbie. He's from Australia. So hi, Mr. Robbie. So just the fact that he can learn the things that I've learned from the Gracie family, as I see how successful they've become, everything they've done, it's, it's, yeah. I can't even put it. It's amazing. It's, um, guillotine. Guillotine. Look at that guillotine. Oh, wait, just, oh my goodness, he's got it around the neck. See if I can find Spider-Man. Ready for it. Yeah. Uh, no, it's uh, oh, random skin. Look at it. We have so much yeah. comics here as well. Look at that. Robbie loves comics. He I know, I do. I do. I have so many. I was so impressed with your Spider-Man t-shirt. Yeah, he loves your Spider-Man shirt. Right? <laughs> um, yeah yeah um so like i guess for for yourself um coming up through like so many different instructors and so forth and seeing you two as a progress what were like some of the challenges you had in progressing like what were some of the, the things you found were hurdles as far as just train, train with different different instructors, you mean, or just? Oh, just in general, like across your training, like what were some things that was that you found as your challenge? The biggest hurdle was the um, <laughs> the fact that I couldn't train on a regular basis with an instructor. I've never had a black belt instructor over. Me. Yeah. You know, where on a regular basis. I mean, I, I had to learn by going out to the academy for. Hold on, I'm talking right now, Sam. Okay, can you wait just a second? Um, the fact that I didn't have somebody constantly giving me the input that I would really desire. Yeah. You know, I can only learn a few times a year. I'd go out there for a week, come back and try to figure stuff out for a few months. And yeah. being a blue belt, I was the highest rank around. Yeah. You know, so there wasn't really anybody to correct my mistakes on a regular basis. I had to figure it out or learn the hard way when I went back out to train with, with the Gracies, you know. So that was probably my biggest hurdle was the fact that I didn't have, it wasn't as accessible to me as it is to my students. Yeah. You know, I tell my students all the time how lucky it you are not to have me personally as much as just having a black belt here, you know, just having, having an instructor that knows what they're talking about. Cause I didn't have that on a regular yeah. basis. I, I mean, I had the best instructors in the world, but I, didn't, I couldn't train with them twice a week. It's so interesting. Right? Cause like Hannah was talking about um, the people who can learn online and how like it's a very particular uh, person who will go and watch a video and train it and rep it out and go through and it's a very particular person that will you know empty their savings account and fly out for a weekend to train and then like you you had that mentality that henna's talking about which is like i'm willing to put in that effort um and learn it and like it's that one percent of the of the population that's willing to do it you're uncommon amongst uncommon people like doing jujitsu is not a common practice and your desire to learn the way you did was, was it. It's, that's so cool to, to kind of hear that. And, and, and what's, it's also, interesting. I have so many, I have so many people that I know it's like, Oh, I'd love to come train at your gym. Mm. Hold on. Hold on. Right now, please. Okay. I'm going to have to sing back. I'm going to listen. Okay. You listen. Um, I've had a lot of people say, 
that well, I'd come to your gym, but you're like 20 minutes away. Mm. You're 30 minutes away. It's like, man, it's so far. And I'm like, man, I understand. I mean, I have to go all the way to California to get my lessons. So yeah. I just imagine I have to go 20 minutes, you know? Yeah. And so it's a matter of perspective, you know, but, but you're right. I mean, it, it took, I was driven. I've always been driven just because I, you know, if you want something bad enough, you'll, you'll get it, you know, yeah. you'll do it. And um, it is, it's, there's not a lot of people like that, I'm sure. But I also realize that not everybody's like that. So it's not like I don't judge people because they don't do it. You know, I understand. 100%, right? Like, imagine if you try to hold people to the standard you hold yourself. Like, we're not always completely uh, satisfied with the way we go about doing things. And people look at the way we go about doing things as like, oh, well, I can't believe they're doing any of the things that they're doing. So like, right. you can't hold people to that expectation. Um, if you did, you'd... you'd You'd walk around very negative the whole time, right? It's, uh, it's like that whole, like, expect nothing and praise everything kind of situation. I'm still waiting. I'm just opening this door right here. Yeah, no problem. All right. Yeah, go back up to mom, so I'm back now. Um, no, you're right. You're right. And it's, it's just, you know, everyone's different. Everybody has their own dream. You know, it's, it's, like, saying, it's like saying, you know, I want to I learn how to play guitar, for instance. You know, yeah. I don't know how to play guitar. I'd love to learn how to play guitar. But it's very easy for me to say I don't have time because of all mm. the things I do. But I do have time. Everybody has time. Yeah. I'm just not willing to take away things I'm already doing in order to play guitar. 100%. Yeah. Obviously, I don't want to play it bad enough to give up my jujitsu training or to mm. give up my family life or to give up part of my job or whatever it may be because it would take time to be able to put any kind of dedication. Or I want to play golf. I'd love to go play golf. But I can't imagine taking away my training time to go spend a few hours out on the golf course when I could be rolling on the mats doing something else. So we all have time to do whatever we want to do. It's just a matter of where we prioritize those, those desires, you know? Yeah. I love that. I love that thought, right? Like that we, that is, it's, it's what you place value in is what you're going to commit your time to. Um, and so you just have to assess what's actually valuable to you, you know, because people go and be like, I want to go out drinking on the weekend. And I remember being like, 15 years old and on the weekend going and working at my parents' restaurant and then choosing to go to bed straight away so I could go to a 5 a.m. class because I valued the training over the socializing through drinking and so forth. And like, right. Mm. right. You're exactly right. And I mean, you'll, you'll do what you want to do, whatever you play, place value in, you'll make that happen. So when people say, oh, I don't have time to do jujitsu. No, you just don't want to do it bad enough. I wouldn't say it's right to them rude you know but, it, but that's really what it boils down to is you just yeah. don't want to play bad enough. i really do want to play guitar i really do want to play golf but obviously i just don't want to do them bad enough to give up anything yeah. so make some sacrifice you know but is it a sacrifice or is it an investment you know mm -hmm. it depends on how you want to look at it you know i look at it as an investment i'm not sacrificing anything because there's nothing that i have to suffer in order to gain something everything mm -hmm. i'm doing is an investment because all i'm doing is giving but getting more of a return than i could ever put into it yeah, beautiful. Um, I've been asking this one question to everybody who I've been talking to this week, and it's just like, why, why jujitsu? Like, what? Why do you want to share it with other people at the end? Well, a couple things. Number one, I like to share jujitsu because of how effective it is. Mm. It, it's there's nothing hypothetical about it. There's no fantasy about it. It's it's as real as it gets. Yeah. And I like genuineness, right? Whether it's in people or whether it's in something that's applicable, it has to be genuine. And mm -hmm. there's nothing more genuine than jujitsu as far as I'm concerned. And I've done a lot of martial arts, but it's, it's super genuine. Um, but also it's because it's kind of like, um, 
you know, I was asking some people before and I, my, even my recruits to ask me, you know, what, what makes jiu-jitsu different than other styles of martial arts? And jiu-jitsu is really the only style that I know that you can change someone's mind about wanting to hurt you. Yeah. Like doing a Jedi mind trick. You don't want to fight me anymore. And they go, wow, I don't want to fight you anymore. You want to put your hands behind your back. Oh, I want to put my hands behind my back, you know, type of thing. Whereas other, other types of martial arts, you can't really do that as easily. Mm. And um, so jujitsu is really neat because it has so much, it's such an influencer. You can use it to influence so many people, whether it's physically or mentally, you can really influence them to do the right thing without having to force anything, ironically. That's where jujitsu means a gentle art. You don't have to beat someone's face in to get them to do what you want, what you want to do. And really all you want is them not to hurt you. So I can convince somebody, I can change their mind about wanting to fight me in the first place and that's why I want to teach it to people. I want to give people that, that empowerment to have that confidence where they can walk the streets and know, you know what? I don't have to fight anyone to prove anything, but I also, I'm also very protected. It's like having your own superpower. You know, your superpower is jujitsu. It's so funny, man. I've used that speech in class so much about the jujitsu is the only martial arts that can change your mindset. And it just clicked with me that you're the one who said it to me first at your seminar seven years ago. Um, yeah, it was, it was you. Like I'm remembering it right now, the whole speech going like, you know, from there. And it was one of the best things I do because I was teaching karate as well at the same time. And I was boxing at the same time. And it was like, if I walk over and I punch somebody in the face, they're not going to say, I don't want to fight. They're going to ball their fist up and try and throw it back at me. If I hold you in side mount and you realize you can't get out, you're, you're gonna, at some point you're going to stop fighting and go, can you get off me? I don't want to do this anymore. That's exactly right. You know, you can punch someone in the face 50 times, you know, mm. break their nose, knock their teeth out, their eyeball can be hanging out. You didn't necessarily change their mind. Yeah. But if you can control somebody like Hoist did with Art Jimerson at UFC 1, yeah. control somebody to the point where, what did Art Jimerson say? In, in essence, he said, I will write you a $50,000 check if you'll just get off me. Yeah. I'll give you $50,000 if you'll just get off me. It's basically what he says. He says, I'm give up. That 50 grand doesn't mean anything to me anymore. You can have it. Just get off me. Yeah. So when you can change a mindset like that, that's amazing. And in jujitsu, you know, I can put you, you put somebody in a submission one time, twice at the most, you just change their mind. Yeah. You know, and th there's no, there's nothing out there that, that can do it like jujitsu does, you know, that I've mm. seen. And um, that, that's why, that's why I love teaching people so much. Cause I want to, you know, it's, it's their superpower. But I always ask them too, if you can have one superpower, what would it be? You hear fly, invisibility, mind reading, whatever. Mine, by the way, would be time travel. <laughs> I'd love to be able to just see things like in the 1920s or whatever. But seriously, the superpower, my superpower would be jujitsu. Mm. Walk around with like an invisible force field on that nobody can hurt you. And yet you can still change people's mind when they want to do bad things. Yeah. You know, that's, and that's just like the coolest superpower ever, you know? So that's how I look at it. Nice, man. Um, I, I know I asked for half an hour of your time and I've taken an hour now. So um, I know it flew by. It was so good. I just, I just saw the time pop up and I was like, Oh, we've been going for, for, for a while, but um, I really appreciate your time, man. And you know, like we're so fortunate to be connected um, across 
you know, these, these different um, affiliations that we're with, like so, uh, with Vasa Pedro and Gracie came in and so forth. But to have these connections around the world that, that I know that if I were to travel over to the US, that I have a school in Kentucky that I can go and go to and hang out with, that's going to be the same vibe and the same culture. And I want to have, you know, amazing teachers on the mat that are going to look after me while I'm through. And vice versa for your students, if they ever came to Australia, they know that there's schools here, they're going to look after them. And it's such a comforting thing to know that we're connected because there was a long time where uh, I was learning and feeling very isolated. Like this is kind of like our self-defense school in the middle of Melbourne and there's all these other jujitsu schools, but they don't really want the self-defense aspect of it. Um, and so like we were like the, the, like the removed family from the jujitsu thing. But to know that there's all these different schools around the world, and now we are connected and we can kind of all be together. It's so cool to know that. So it's going to be cool to share um, you know, the experiences that we've had with you in this conversation with my students and with your students and just to say that there is this like awesome uh, connections that we have across the world. So thank you so much for taking the time out today. Like I know you've got your family and I know you've just finished work. So I really do appreciate your time. Man, you got it, Robbie. And like I said, it's not just an academy you have here. If you ever want to come here, it's a family, you know, like mm. you're my brother as far as I'm yeah. concerned. You know? And your students, it's like a family to us. They're all part of the family. You know, that's what's so great about it. So it goes beyond just the training environment, but it's like, man, you guys need anything. All they gotta do is say, hey, I train with Robbie in Australia. Come on over here, I'll get you whatever you need. We'll make sure you have dinner, a place to stay, show you whatever, whatever we gotta do, you know? Yeah. So um, you're right, it's, it's, it's a great connection. I feel very fortunately connected to you personally um, and through the jujitsu as well. But man, thanks a lot for letting me do this and uh, anytime, man, and you guys stay safe and stay healthy out there. Yeah, thank you so much. That was an incredible conversation with Alan Mangalena. I hope you all enjoyed listening to uh, his perspective on jiu-jitsu, his philosophy on it, um, and how he's learned to take the philosophy of jiu-jitsu and apply it to his day-to-day life, which is the overall goal of jiu-jitsu. Thanks for listening. Oh, 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 oh,